and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. Well, it has been such a big week in the horse world. We've had Royal Windsor Horse Show, delayed, of course, normally runs in May, but happening later this year. And it was wonderful to, to see that big show going ahead and see those winners riding in the shadow of the castle. It's such a great setting. There was also the NAF Five Star Winter Dressage Championships at Hartbury last week, another show out of the normal place in the calendar. But um, so exciting to see all those dressage winners having their chance as well. We had a, a big press day at Horse and Hound on Monday this week and you can read all about those shows in the magazine this week. We also finally this week received the long-awaited British team announcements for the Tokyo Olympics. I just can't wait now to be out in Tokyo to be bringing you all the news as it happens and we wish all those teams the very best as we go through these final nerve-wracking weeks of preparation. I know they all would like to be wrapping their horses up in cotton wool but of course they can't. They need to have those final gallops, those final jumps, those final bits of training as they go into quarantine and prepare for that journey. This week, we'll be indulging in some Olympic nostalgia on the podcast because our guest is Tina Cook. She will relive the brilliant memories of her first Olympics back in 2008 in Hong Kong. Oh, God, it's just making me smile just even talking about it now. Just mega. It never goes away. The crowds and the support were truly magical. I'll also be catching up with our news team about the 2021 British Five Star, whip use in racing, and there's a bit of a focus too on cardiac arrest. Finally, trainer Jason Webb will give some advice on riding horses in large groups, whether that's hacking out or in a busy collecting ring. When you start to enlarge groups, you're in company with more than two to three horses. This has a real herding effect with your horse and it can really create anxiety or exuberance. More from Jason later. For now, it's time to zip up your body protector and kick on to the first fence. I am delighted to introduce our guest today, the event rider Tina Cook. Tina is the winner of 13 senior championship medals, including three at Olympics, and was the individual European champion in 2009. Hello, Tina. Welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's lovely to have you on. I know that you were on the podcast at Christmas in our victorious quiz team, so it's good to have you back. And we are obviously now sort of in the final countdown to the Tokyo Olympics, so we thought this would be a good time to indulge in some Olympic memories. And I wanted to talk to you about your success at the 2008 Olympics in Hong Kong. And I wanted to start by sort of setting the scene because you were a very experienced team rider by the time that 2008 Olympics came round, but you hadn't had an Olympic call up before, although you had been reserve. Can you tell us when did you sort of first in your career find yourself sort of in the running for, for Olympic selection building up to a games? Oh my goodness. I, I've been very lucky, as you said, to have gone from juniors and young riders straight into senior teams and winning a senior medal when I was sort of 22, 23. So I had a, a taste of the big time quite young. And then really the Olympics were looking like they were going to elude me, really. Um, for Atlanta, I had uh, General Jock and Midnight 
blue both horses that I produced from three and four year olds that had were both the top 10 placed uh, British horses at badminton I think they were like six and eight or something like that and they both went wrong and I thought well really if I've got two horses there that have gone so well surely one of them would get me to an Olympic Games and they didn't just through minor minor injuries that I couldn't get them right and and it seemed to be that seemed to happen to me and then I went to um I was selected as reserve for Sydney and as you can imagine that was a long way to go there were two reserves Ian Stark and myself and it was just an opportunity I took. My owners were very concerned about going all that way as, as a reserve, being out there for six weeks and, and possibly not getting the chance to compete. And they weren't really prepared to send the horse out there. And I sort of said, well, look, I will find the, the money to, to, to travel out there. I really want that. I think this will be my sort of last chance. And I was sort of 30 in those days. And um, I probably won't ever get a chance to Olympic Games. I'm getting old. I mean, I laugh about it now because obviously I'm really old now. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I felt in my mind that was going to be my my last chance. And so I, I did, did went to Sydney. And as much as it was an amazing experience, I never got the chance to compete. So it was that really fine line between it being an amazing experience, but equally being completely torturous um a real mind he- mind bogglingly emotional car crash really you know because you just had to hold yourself together in front of everybody but actually in a you know in in many ways sort of wanting something had to happen to the others obviously nothing nasty um for me to get the opportunity to compete and i thought that was my one and only chance gone I love that idea that uh, sort of uh, 20 years ago, you thought that was going to be your last Olympic chance and it was yeah. uh, and it was all over and here we are still. But yes, um, after Sydney, I, I think I'm right in saying you sort of weren't really in the running for Athens, but then by the time Hong Kong in 2008 came around, you were back in the mix of Minus Frolic. Is that right about Athens? Yes, yes, I had. I then had a little horse that, again that I produced. Um, I've been very lucky in my career, even though I sort of try and planned it, but I've been very equally very lucky that a little horse called Captain Christie. And he, I rode him at a Worlds and a Europeans, but he wasn't quite top class. He was a good cross country horse and a good horse, but just missed the cut for getting getting there. So yes, we missed out on we missed out on Athens. We weren't selected, um, and then and then it all started getting close to Hong Kong. And actually, my good old mate William Fox Pitt, the the year before. Um, there and I said oh, I've got the young horse minus frolic and he went to uh, Blenheim and I think I was third at Blenheim and he said you know you've got a chance the Olympics next time and don't be so ridiculous you know he's not done enough um, really and he goes well try and get another event into and I remember looking and seeing Bukalo and thought actually five six weeks in between the event he's a thoroughbred horse I went out there and I was second or third out there and went well and all of a sudden Hong Kong became a possibility for me again I was reserve but but managed to get in through toy town going lame um and 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 getting the call up there rather last minute 
Mm, and obviously Zara Phillips now, Tyndall's wonderful horse, Toy Town, was the horse who dropped out. But go go a little bit slower, Tina, because I want to ask you about the week yeah. in Hong Kong and, and so on. But um, I also want to ask you a bit about Minus Frolic. You said he, he was obviously a thoroughbred horse and you have a lot to do with thoroughbreds through your brother's racing operation as well. How did you come to ride him? Well, it was actually through through dad. Um, obviously, I've been brought up with thoroughbred horses. I know them inside out. And, um, you know, it's, the business was at home. So I really was literally brought up with them. And an owner called Morris Pinto, who had horses, uh, he owned horses with, with my father when my father was training. And he then decided himself to set up a point-to-point yard locally. And then when, when Morris Pinto uh, decided to pack up horses completely, he very, very kindly said to myself and my brother, Nick, I have a horse for you both. And he was always very supportive, supportive of young people and said, look, this one will come to you, Tina, and this one will go to you, Nick, and, and make of them as you will. Oh, gosh, very, very kind. You know, thank you very much. And uh, lovely. And I went to go and pick him up from his yard and he was only a four year old. I thought, oh, my God, he's beautiful. And I thought, really amazing. So I quietly produced him um, as a young horse. And, um, you know, as, as everyone knows, he was, he was a lovely looking horse. But to begin with, he wasn't really overly brave uh, cross country, didn't like getting his feet wet and um, and was a bit of a pansy, really. And so I, I hunted him one season just to sort of toughen him up and let him see a bit of mud. And, you know, he got more and more confident with me. And I always felt that he was a horse that I needed to, as a rider, get his education right without frightening him. He was very much a very insecure horse that uh, he needed to have the belief and trust in me. And and it sort of went on, went on from there. And then I took him and did the Burley Young Event Horse with him as a five-year-old, really just for education. And he, he went on to win. And it just shows that the judges know what they're looking at because he wouldn't have been a flash horse like the warm bloody horses. But they obviously saw, saw something in him and they were totally correct because he oozed quality. But more than anything else, it was his will to please me. Mm, and I do remember him being sort of the, the picture of a, of a really beautiful thoroughbred horse. And as you say, in that sort of year before Hong Kong, he won what was a CIC three star then at Gatcombe. He was second at Blenheim. And then, as you said, made that turnaround to take him to Bookalo and get another run in him to, to sort of keep him on the selector's radar, as, as you said. And you decided not to sort of push him to take him four star as it was then the following spring, but to keep going down that three star route, didn't you? Yes, because, you know, I, I just felt that it was it was getting I was getting to, going to be getting too greedy and to keep the, the confidence in the horse and, and keep getting the the solid results, which he was, you know, he had a, he had a very good brain and because he never actually raced. Um, so he came to me before before he raced, he'd only literally just been broken in. So um, I was very lucky. I didn't have to do the retraining aspect of the racehorses. Um, so he was a thoroughbred that you could start off from scratch, which makes life so much easier. But he had the quality that you could run him reasonably often because the galloping cross country didn't take much out of him. So it was I was able to get the mileage into him reasonably quickly without punishing him, if you sort of mean. And so he he went through the grades very easily and 
got good results at his three days again because he was he was quick and was very very consistent from that point of view Mm, and worth noting that he was a very he was a young horse in in Hong Kong to be at an Olympics, and and also you know you're a mother you've got two children and 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 sort of had had your son Harry during the build up to that Olympics as well. So he had some time out through no fault of his own because of that as well, didn't he? Yes, I was I was I was lucky with my pregnancies that actually it was over the winter, so that he just had the horses just had a, a slightly extended. Uh, winter holiday and then I was back in the saddle you know fairly quickly at the beginning of the season but it it was an Olympic Games that I never expected to happen Um, as I said you know I'd had the children how was I going to feel after getting back uh, competing and you know because he was such a lovely polite horse to ride and I had an, another an advanced horse that was a, a lovely horse to ride I felt that actually I was able to get back and compete at the very, very top level after after having the children. And I just, because I was reserved to begin with, it was more a very last minute of getting fitter quickly because reasonably common knowledge that actually Harry was a twin. So I'd carried twins. So I got very, very big. And so it took quite a struggle for me to get my tummy muscles. They were very overstretched um, back in some sort of shape to look vaguely look like an olympic athlete let alone performing like an olympic athlete so luckily the the um sports fund helped me and and gave me a bike and that i was able to put in my house and help me get fit because obviously the worry with hong kong as well was going to be the heat as as it will be this year for the for the tokyo riders that the heat and humidity so that was i needed to get fit very very quickly when i when i got the call up um, so that I was in peak condition. And just for those who don't know that that sad story about uh, about Tina's twins, Tina in January 2007 had her son Harry, but as she says, he was a twin and um, she lost the other one at birth. Obviously very sad and presumably you sort of had to pick yourself up again mentally to come back and actually have that amazing season after that, as well as physically, as you've just been saying. Yes, it, it was really, really tough. Yes, I, I lost uh, Harry's sister at birth. And so it was that very mixed and, and again, mentally um, very confusing time because you're very th- thrilled with the birth of your son, but obviously very sad with the loss loss of a daughter. So, um, yeah, no, it, it was. And, and, and there are times when it is very sad. But what we're so lucky about in our sport is to have amazing people around us and... If you're at the top of the sport, you have to learn to um, focus on on positives. And as much as it was a very sad time for me, I had a lot to to get back into and to focus on and to to drive myself. So. And then jumping ahead to the next year, to the Olympic year, you were selected, as you said, as reserve, and you got the call up. From that call-up point to going out to Hong Kong, how long in advance did you know you were going? Oh, it it wasn't. It was getting jolly close. Um, if I'm I'm sort of guessing about sort of six six weeks before, really six eight weeks before it it got it got very close. You you gen your whole mindset changes. Um, and you know the horse the horse was was fit. I'd been working on my fitness, but until you actually know you're going and that that you're you're having to work out the logistics of everything um owners going how the horse is going to get there the feeding and and yes there is a whole team around you but suddenly 
the whole ball game changes and um you know it's just so exciting as i had had sort of 20 25 years of thinking about an olympic games and now it really was it was really going to happen for me so it's the best feeling in the world and how long did you travel out to Hong Kong before sort of before you started competing? Because I know that riders can have quite a lot of time sometimes out at venues. Was that the case in Hong Kong or was it quite a short build up out there? It was quite a short build up. We were we were out there just about a week before. Um, you know, all the, the scientists and the, the vets all work out from from the horse's point of view of, of traveling and flying into humidity uh, when the horses will be at their peak. And actually, their peak was a, a, being out there a week before the horses then um, need to be there for an extended length of time. Um, so actually, it, it worked out really well. So from our point of view as well, we used to work the horses early in the morning and basically nobody rode during the day because it was so hot and they provided amazing facilities in the middle of Hong Kong on, on the race course there. Uh, there's a big indoor school with air conditioning in and and really it's it's working out what's what's best for your horse without putting them under too much stress. And the main thing is that the horses get on that aeroplane in as best condition as possible and and same with us as well you suddenly look at yourself in a very different light of, of being fit and healthy and hydrated and all those sort of things so that when you arrive in a very different climate you land there with you know you land there running and and that you haven't got too many setbacks and every olympic games is always dramas and, and william's horse didn't arrive very very well and, and it was all they he was always on a that's William Fox Pitt. You know, he was always on a back foot trying to get his horse uh, through the competition. So he had a nightmare. Um, but I was very lucky that, we, you know, everything went well for me. Yes, William was riding Parmore Ed on that occasion. And as you say, he wasn't quite on his best form, but Miner's Frolic really was. You called him Henry, didn't you, Tina? Actually, he came, he came with the name Henry, in fact. And then it was slightly ironic because I owned it myself, producing him for a couple of years. And then uh, great family friends of my parents, um, uh, the Embarikoses, who uh, owned uh, Alden Eaton in the Grand National, had an interest in another horse I'd ridden and, and wanted to buy a share of him, as did Sarah and Henry Pelham. So actually one of his owners was a Henry. Um, so it was slightly ironic. But yes, he was named Henry. Yeah, I was just literally about to say that. And I thought, gosh, I haven't thought of his stable name for years. And I was just going to say, tell us tell us about how Henry was that week. And I thought, was that his name? But uh, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I remembered that right. Yeah. So talk us through the week. He did a great dressage test to kick things off, obviously. Yes, and it was it was done to uh, the selectors were thinking, you know, when you're performing either very early in the morning or very late at night, so... Uh, because to avoid the heat, they were trying to work out which out because there was five of us in the team uh, that year, um, which horses would be suited to the heat, which horses will shine under the lights. And he was a really young horse, and he hadn't really been exposed to. Yes, he had he had competed at Blenheim and Buccalo, but really, it's nothing like an Olympic Games in the stadiums and the lights and the crowds. You know, we really. He had an amazing brain, but you still don't know how these horses are going to cope with that sort of atmosphere until you actually put them in it. But they 
wanted me to go number three and I was more than happy with that position which meant that he was going to do his dressage at I can't even remember it's something like half past 10 at night it was it was kind of strange um actually getting ready to do your dressage test and getting dressed and you're like well, I should be going to bed, not going off to dressage <laughs> test. Um, and yeah, you know, he, bless him, he was such a kind, sweet, he, I mean, he's still alive, actually, I'm talking about him in the past, but um, it feels ages ago since I rode him. But he absolutely tried his very, very best. He, you know, he wasn't the most supple of horses, but his beauty and good looks and his fabulous temperament uh, took him a long way. And, and yes, he did perform one of his personal bests. Yeah, and he scored a 40.2, which is the equivalent of a 26.8 in today's money. So a very competitive test. And the cross-country day was a real tough one. The time was, I think, in the end, impossible to get. And you came home with 17.2 time faults, which sounds a lot, but was actually a fast round. What do you remember about that day? That day, we were very lucky. We had to move to um, a different area. So all the horses were loaded up and transported off to the, uh, the golf course which was about sort of 45 minutes away. And it was all a very slick operation. So again, the horses had to cope with being moved around. And this is where it's so important having horses with good temperaments because there's a lot of movement going on for them. And we were very lucky on Cross Country Day because it was just a little bit cloudy. We didn't have the baking sun on us. Um, It had been uh, raining and we'd had a few thunderstorms and but it was still warm but not as hot as it could have been um but and it was very it was twisty the ground was as you can imagine on a golf course quite carpety like but actually underneath was very very firm so it was slippery and so and there were a lot of lot of twists and turns as well to take and I remember there was quite a difficult water fence very early on, which you had to jump quite a big fence into water, jump a difficult uh, angle of houses in the water. And I just wondered how he was going to cope with that early on. And the course did cause quite a lot of trouble all the way through. And it was a difficult course to make the time because of the slipping around the corners and some places got a little bit cut up. But I was very aware with him to, you know, in the end, it's a team performance. Um, A team scores count and I set off riding a young horse, wanting him not to be alarmed early on and pick up the pace the further I went. If I rode it again, maybe I would have set off a little bit quicker. But um, the most important thing for me was that I had plenty of horse left uh, plenty of petrol in the tank left at the end because there were a couple of really difficult combinations at the end of the course and yes he did end up full of running and he absolutely took it full on and yes he was one of the quicker ones but it's always it's always if only if only I had uh, I'd actually ridden him like I knew him and believed in him but I always had that in my mind he's a young horse don't over you know don't don't over pressurize him but oh it was a magical day and then the next day the show jumping obviously two rounds of show jumping at the Olympic Games two clears and you were 10th after cross country and ended up in the individual bronze position and leading the British team to the team bronze how did it feel to after all those years of waiting to get to an Olympics, you go from being the reserve to coming home with the individual medal. That must have been amazing. Oh, you're just making me smile just even talking about it now. Um, 
Oh, God, it's just mega. I just, you, it never goes away. Oh, it never go away. It's the things you absolutely dream of. Equally, you have to keep your feet on the ground and you deal with it like it's another competition. You can't allow yourself to realise exactly what's happening to you and where you are. The crowds and the support were unbelievable. Riding under those lights in the massive stadium in the middle of Hong Kong was truly magical and again jumping in the evening so you're under the lights who knows how he was going to cope to jump two rounds and he absolutely jumped his socks off um to jump for the team for the team performance and then when he went in for the second round to be honest he wasn't gifted with a lot of scope um he he had the ability to jump round 125 130 and the second round looks enormous believe me when you've got to go out there and try and jump a clear round and I just I just made sure he had plenty of pace and he was just just out of young horse naivety just wanted to leave those fences up and it was our moment he he did it for me and to to get so close to gold now I suppose I'm sounding greedy um, it was it was magical to get the bronze, but then when you think, oh God, I was so close to getting to being gold. But um, if I look back on 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 the week, it was it was one of those special ones. And you know, things went right for me. Things didn't go so well for others. Um, poor old William, as I said, had a bit of a nightmare all week. Um, but at the moment, at that, at that time, you have to see, seize the moment for yourself. Yes, you're riding for your country and you have to put in your personal bests and personal bests win medals. So it was my week. It really was. And as you say, you weren't far off the individual gold. I've got the horse and hound here actually from that week. And um, the the winner, Henrik Remiker, finished on 54.2 and you finished on 57.4. So less than a show jump in it, but uh, but you're on the cover of this horse and hound. I dug it out to have a look at to prepare for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well done. <laughs> uh, well, it was an incredible week. And of course, Minus Frolic went on to, to be a very successful horse afterwards. As I said in the intro, the individual gold medal at the Europeans the year after he was a world team gold medalist and went to another Olympics with Team Silver in London that home Olympics as well yes and uh, you know from a horse's point of view there are not many event horses that actually make it through to two Olympic games and and he and he did and to, to go on and be European champion afterwards was 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 very special and um and he had a bit of a nightmare which I'm sure was well published um the year before London uh, where he got colitis, um, he had a silly bite on the on his back that had to have quite a lot of antibiotics, and then from the antibiotics he then got the colitis and was very very ill horse uh, to the point of very nearly being being put to sleep. Um, even down to a phone call that evening, the vets said to me because we couldn't go and couldn't go and see him because he had to be kept in isolation because he was so ill and they said look if we call you tonight I'm afraid it will be to say we need to let him go and as you can imagine I did not sleep that night and and I can safely say the phone luckily never rang and he made a recovery and got back and it was just amazing just to have him 
alive. And then he went back home and recovered. And we said, well, let's try. And because he was ill, I wasn't qualified for the Olympics. So then I had to qualify and go to Ballandenisk Ireland, put on a Ballandenisk in March, February, March, wasn't it? Some, it was felt like in the middle of winter anyway, um, for us to get uh, qualified. Um, and well, no, they didn't put it on just for me. It makes it sound like it's put on for me. <laughs> um, there were, there were a, a number of people that were needing, still needing qualifications for London. So I managed to get him back. He recovered and took him out there and I got my Olympic qualification. So, you know, here we go. The, it all, all got going again, but it, at least it put me back on the selectors list to at least be in their minds, even though the horse had missed the year before that, you know, if you're not qualified, you can't go. And, um, it was, it was a year and a winter full of emotion for me because my dad had died a few months before then. And so that was very traumatic. And again, going back to, like, as I said before, having, disasters happen in your life that actually try having positives and and I knew that you know dad would support me to the hilt from that point of view to actually have good things to focus on to take away the pain you're totally right that Ballandellis was in the winter the uh, end of February is the date of that that uh, that he came third and, and got that qualification to get back in the mix well I feel like we could do a whole separate podcast on the London Olympics and maybe one day we will Tina but it's been fantastic to talk to you about Henry and about the build-up to, to that Hong Kong Olympics and about those magical couple of medals and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast oh that's all right pleasure lovely to talk about it again So I'm joined today by two of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk to look at what's been going on. First of all, we have our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you, Pippa. I've been I've been at the Winter Dressage Championships, which seems a strange thing to be saying in July. Um, but it, it's been a brilliant week, actually. Um, how are you? Yes, I am. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. I had a, a slightly uh, terrifying and then funny message from my mum last week about what was happening with Alfie, our horse. You know, when you get that message that says Alfie has been a bad pony in capital no. letters. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what has happened here? And she had basically gone out for about an hour. And when she came back, he was wearing the neck of his fly rug, but he had entirely shredded the rest of it and taken it off. Oh, so, Alfie. Yes, not not in best pony books. So, yes, all good apart from that. And we also have with us our news writer, Becky Murray. How are you, Becky? I'm good, thank you. I am enjoying being back on board and just building up Chloe's fitness again. So if I can have a quite few weeks with no dramas or disasters, I'll be very happy. <laughs> yep, <laughs> I know the feeling on that, definitely, with horses. And we've had some good news this week, which is the announcement that Bicton is going to host a replacement five-star over Burley weekend. And this is going to be so huge for all of the riders with five-star horses in Britain. There were, of course, options to travel abroad to five-stars, but it's always expensive and particularly difficult at the moment with COVID and Brexit. So it's really wonderful that so many more 
more of our top horses will have that opportunity to show what they can do in this country this autumn what do you think about that story Lucy? I agree with you um as you said just then we've seen how difficult it's been for people to travel abroad for the five stars that have happened this year in Kentucky and Lemoulin so for Britain to now have a replacement one is it's really important I think of course at the top of the sport there's horses that are they're they're out and out five star horses and they don't go on forever and they don't all want or need you know an extra four star long on their legs or 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 as their aim really and of course you know we've got Poe in France and the new five star at Maryland in in the US in October but again going back to what you're saying about the challenges and costs of traveling abroad even even in a non-pandemic non-Brexit time um it's it's costly and timely and, and it's a big big journey really so it's really important I think for sport in Britain that there are five star opportunities for for those horses and riders and I think it's also wonderful to hear that I know at the moment, especially we can't say everything set in stone. We're all used to these pandemic times, things are changing all the time. But it's wonderful to hear right now that they're definitely planning on the chance of having some spectators there in person as well as as well as the live streaming for people that can't be there. Yeah, definitely. And from a fan point of view, it'll be so fun for them to ever to sort of see see that sport and follow our top level horses again, which is great. And my understanding is that pulling this off was a really big collaborative effort between British Eventing, British Equestrian, the Eventing Riders Association of Great Britain, Helen West team at Bicton Owners. They've got a sponsor in Cheddington who also sponsored the four star event there at Bicton. So really great to see the sport working together to bring off something like this, I think. And you were there for the four star weren't you Peppa what's the venue like for those who haven't been there yeah I was Becky you're right it's um it's a lovely venue I had never been there before there's a lot of terrain which maybe surprised me I'm not sure why because of course we all know Devon's quite hilly but um, yeah genuine terrain um proper hills which caught out some horses on fitness for the four star and they'll be finding a bit of extra distance again for the five star so really an opportunity to make a proper cross-country course there. And I know Mark Phillips is going to be designing, so I don't think this will be one for the faint-hearted. They've got lovely arenas. So at the four-star, they ran the dressage on a surface and they had warm-ups all on a surface as well. They also have grass arenas, and I don't know which way they're going to go for the five-star, whether they'll be using the surfaces. That would be a, a first for a five-star in Great Britain to have dressage and show jumping on a surface, or whether they will be using their beautiful grass arena. So I I think either way, it'll be a great venue um, and a one that fans and owners and riders will really enjoy so that's some really good news moving on to other stories lucy you have been working on a piece about potential changes to whip use in racing and it's the start of a public consultation what did the british horse racing authority say about the reasons behind this so I joined the media briefing about this, um, which happened just ahead of, of the launch of the public consultation. And to be honest, I've been following this since um, back in last year when the Horse Welfare Board, which is part of the racing industry, that's not exclusive to the British Horse Racing Authority, um, recommend this is one of their recommendations that a review on the use of the whip happened. So this is now that happening, slightly delayed because of COVID and, and everything that went with that. But essentially, the main impression I got from the briefing, which, as I said, I was really keen to sit in on to hear more about why this is happening and um, and where it's going to go, was that this is about public trust and also sporting fairness. 
So Brant Dunshay, who's the British Horse Racing Authority's chief regulatory officer, stressed that this is it's not a polarised yes, no debate or a referendum, if you like, over whether the whip stays or goes. Rather, it's a question of how it's used and what the sanctions are for um, for breaking those rules. But he did also say that, that some reform is likely. Nothing is off the table entirely. And just to sort of go into a little bit more about his explanation of, of what's, what's going to be looked at, he said, um, what's clear is that the whip is an issue of public trust and the sport must be alive and responsive to the view of the public who are our current and future customers. Uh, he said, society must trust horse sport to be ethical and reflect its values to maintain acceptance which racing acknowledges and um, that the long-term health of British racing has never been more important in light of the current situation we're all living through and that public trust in the sport will play a pivotal role in the sport's recovery and plans for growth. So, yeah, so that's that's kind of a bit of the background about why this is happening now and what the BHA's viewpoint at the start of it all is. And what is the sort of first stage in this consultation and then what's the timescale moving forward? So the first step is an online questionnaire, which is running for 10 weeks and it's open for everyone. The BHA was really keen to stress that it is fully open to everyone to, to take part in and share their views, not just for the racing world. Um, and from there, there's also going to be detailed discussions over the summer with relevant individuals and focus groups and volunteers. And I asked in the briefing if they would be including those from other parts of the equestrian sport in this, as, as we all know from being in, in the horse world, racing doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, and I was told that they would be. So that's quite interesting as well. Um, the proposed sort of further on timeline from this is that the new rules are going to be decided for January 2022 time, followed by sort of bedding in phase and changes implemented in the spring, which is going to be when they say the spring, it's likely to be sort of after the Grand National and ahead of the first classics. So that's looking around sort of early May time. And if people go to fill in this questionnaire, what sort of questions are they going to be asked? Have you had a look at it? Do you have an idea of the flavour? Yeah, so I had a bit of a look at it and um, and the sort of general themes and, and what sort of is coming out of that. So sort of the penalties, whether disqualification, if rules have been breached, um, the use of the whip for encouragement, um, the use of it internationally, sort of other considerations and um, yeah, follow up. To, to what happens next as well. So I think it's quite broad. It's not a welfare situation. That was quite clear in the Horse Welfare Board's, the initial thing that started this off, the initial recommendations that it wasn't, the use of the whip wasn't under welfare as, as a as a situation. So it's, it's more how it's used and um, fairness in, um, in how breaches are, are dealt with and things like that and also public perception. So quite wide ranging. Um, and it's also quite interesting, I think, that this isn't going to drag on. It's quite, well, I hope it's not anyway. It's um, We're going to get some answers sort of fairly quickly in terms of rule changes and, and what's happening next. Hmm, okay, thank you, Lucy, for filling us all in on that one. And if you would like to do that questionnaire, you can do so by visiting consultation.britishhorseracing.com. Becky, coming over to you now, you have been working on a story about something that happened on television in another sport and has had some knock on effects. What's this one all about? Well, this story follows the sudden cardiac arrest of the Danish footballer Christian Eriksen. Um, this took place during the Euros game against Finland a couple of weeks ago. 
and it was such an awful thing to happen and he was resuscitated on the pitch but I think what's really sort of come out of this and been brought home is the fact it was on television and you know seen around the world. Okay and what sort of things are coming out of this upswell of interest in sort of first aid and how people might be able to help if they were in that sort of situation? Well, what happened seems to have really sort of pressed that message about how fast you need to act in these situations. UK Coaching has launched an awareness campaign and produced a free digital toolkit which has videos and lots of information on what you need to do and you can also um, undertake an e-learning course. And while working on this, I actually spoke to Dr. Megan Hardman, who is the chairman of the Medical Equestrian Association. And she's found that as a result of what happened to this football player, many people are now looking up to how to use a defibrillator and how to perform CPR. So in that sense, it's certainly given people a bit of a nudge to consider these things or it certainly reminds themselves about what you need to do. And did you speak to anybody sort of in the horse world who's looking at maybe even buying a defibrillator because of it? I did. I spoke to a lady, uh, Fiona McKinnon, who runs the Livery Yard Belhagen Equestrian. Now, Fiona runs grassroots and unaffiliated competitions and is in the process of buying a defib. She said it was something she had considered previously, but what happened to Christian Eriksson really finalised that decision for her. So... I think I wonder if we'll hear of more people considering buying one too, and you can also hire them. But something Dr. Hardman and Fiona both pointed out is when it comes to equestrian sport, yes, you have the riders, but of course there's such a range of people and ages that might be at a competition, whether that's owners, spectators, parents, grandparents. As I say, it's such an awful thing to have happened to the footballer, but it is good to see the equestrian industry are having these conversations now following it. Great. Well, thank you for letting us know all about that, Becky. And thank you to Lucy for joining us today too. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn and benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. In this episode, we're going to talk about riding horses in company. When you start to enlarge groups, you're in company with more than two to three horses. This has a real herding effect with your horse and it can really create anxiety or exuberance in a horse. So in these situations, what I would first say is that your horse thrives on consistency. Now in group situations, if you're introducing your horse to a large group with random inconsistent movements, this is likely to heighten your horse's flight response or anxiety. However, if you introduce your horse to a, a larger group that has, has a pattern, rhythmical movement, then I tend to find your horse accepts large groups much quicker and, and much better moving forward. I do group clinics and in these group clinics, I control the group by making everybody aware 
of their distances between one another and the paces that they're traveling. And I make people responsible for their spaces in my group. What this creates is an environment with a big group of horses that the horse can start to read, i.e. they see patterns and horses start to become secure when they can see an environment and see a pattern or see a routine or rhythm to it. So if you can create this environment or go to environments where this is happening, then you're likely to introduce your horse to a group far more successfully. Some of their most hair-raising rides people have are when they introduce their horse to um, larger groups on, say, a sponsored ride where there is loads of random movements. And if you haven't taught your horse to first understand larger groups in a more succinct way, then this can be the cause of real problems. So that's how you introduce your horse to a group or how I would do it. And I would spend time doing this and like with all horse training, incrementally build up the, the randomness of how you work within that group. Now, this all sounds all, all nice and very controlled if you can get it. And like I say, if you go to clinics and controlled groups, if, you know, in a jumping clinic, you'll stand with a group and your horse will learn to be calm there while someone else operates. And this is a good introduction. And dressage clinics, all sorts of things where the, the, the movement is controlled. When you start to introduce speed and all horses moving at speed, this is where you start to do it in a circular fashion, not in a straight line. If you introduce speed in a straight line in a, as a group is moving, you'll start to find horses race and they get strong. And when a horse locks and goes straight and they've got another horse on their mind trying to keep up, there's this innate instinct in a horse that says, we've got to flight, we've got to get out of this, this space because that horse is getting out of this space. So therefore, when you start to introduce speed, I would make sure I can canter a circle by myself first. And then I would do it with two people. Then I would do it with three people, all in a circular fashion. If a horse gets strong, then they can go to the outside and keep going. The inside horses can slow down and you all come back together. Eventually, your horse will learn that they're not racing, that the answer isn't away from this environment. It's still within this environment. As your horse gets more comfortable with that, then you can start to look at um, traveling off in straight lines and going on sponsored rides where people galloping past you and that sort of thing can happen. And on that situation, if you're faced with um, someone says, can I um, gallop my horse past you? Or worse still, they just come galloping past you and you feel your horse starting to become anxious or starting to want to go with that horse. Again, small circles using one, one rein controls can help, help control that situation for long enough for your horse to calm down. 
or ride in the opposite direction. So you're still doing something positive. You're still pushing your horse in the opposite direction. This does two things. It means you're not holding your horse and creating a claustrophobic environment. And it takes your focus away from the horse as it's galloping off into the distance. And they are really important things to do. Once that horse is out of sight, it will be out of mind and your horse will calm down and you can carry on your ride. So these are not exhaustive tips on how to deal with a horse when you introduce them to company, but they are some really great tips that you can use if you're finding any of these problems are occurring. So give those a go and good luck with your hucking and riding in company. Thank you, Jason, and for all your advice over the past seven weeks. This was actually the last of Jason's mini-series. Next week, we'll therefore be hearing from a new expert, Katie Bleakman, who is an online fitness coach and personal trainer specialising in equestrian athletes. She will be giving advice on fitness for weekend competitors with full-time jobs, which I think is something so many of us need. Our interviewee will be Kian O'Connor, who will be a member of the Irish team at the upcoming Olympics. And of course, we'll have all the week's news as normal. Also, a quick early heads up, our podcast the week after that, the 22nd of July episode, will be an Olympic preview special. So make sure you catch that one and don't miss a moment of the Tokyo build-up. Thank you for joining us this week. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.